for peak performance, I mean, a lot of it is uh, the consistency. So especially for endurance events, you know, and it's true in life, right? I mean, anything that you build a habit on. So like if you want to lose weight, well, you know, I'm, I always tell people I'm not a certified nutritionist, but if you if you shoot for about a half a pound a week, which is 1,500 to 2,000 calories, you know, you're not dieting, you're making it a goal. You're making it in, in a bite-sized type of consistent goal if you do that every week, a half a pound a week, you know, in, in a half a year, in 26 weeks, you're going to lose 13 pounds. So it's that, that similar type of thing. For coaching for athletes, it's, it, a lot of it is, is consistency, especially endurance, endurance events, because you have to build up the load that your body's able to, to handle. Then we're going to have some step back weeks as well, because we don't want to overload people and overtrain and things like that. But, but that consistency is key. And, and people that say, oh, we're going to take a month off. It's you know it's good to make it take a week off after your big event you know and most of the elites and the pros do that after that big event you got to let the muscles kind of kind of you know recover a little bit but uh, consistency is one of the biggest things. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi industry CEO, Navy veteran an entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message and interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue a passion-driven life have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Welcome to episode 53 of the Passion Struck podcast. Dr. PZ Pierce once said, if God invented marathons to keep people from doing something more stupid, triathlons must have taken him completely by surprise. Such a good lead-in for today's episode with Captain Steve Swift. Steve is a certified USAT triathlon and RRCA certified running coach who has trained over 100 elite athletes, coaching many to Ironman status and even more who have qualified for the Boston Marathon. He retired with the rank of captain after serving the United States Navy for 30 years in the submarine community. He then served his country again, working for the Defense Intelligence Agency, where he retired from as a lead planner for the U.S. Central Command in Tampa, Florida. He also spent over 19 years serving as a blue and gold officer for his alma mater, the U.S. Naval Academy. And Steve has completed six Ironman races and 33 marathons. And today we will discuss his path to the Naval Academy, what led him there, why he ended up picking the submarine service, where that led him to in his military career, why he moved to Tampa Bay, joining the inaugural Frogman Swim that benefits the Navy SEAL Foundation, where he is one of only two athletes who has completed that swim every single year. And then on to the selection criteria for the Naval Academy, how he has helped thousands of aspiring midshipmen to get into the Academy. And we also talk about his current career as both a triathlon and running coach. Great episode today. Can't wait for you to hear it. Now let's become passion struck. Steve, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining. 
Thanks for having me, John. It's uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, I see already you've got two of my favorite things in the background. One is uh, obviously a, a Go Navy sign right there. And then the other is given we're in the middle of the Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, the fact that uh, the Lightning won last year was huge. And let's hope we get a repeat. Yeah, no, it's uh, two two things I'm very passionate about. Uh, you know, obviously my Navy background and uh, serving for 30 years. And, and of course, I've been a, a longtime uh, Tampa Bay lived here for for 26 years almost now and uh, became a Tampa Bay Lightning fan back in 1996 so uh yeah I've got uh, I like to say tell people I'm a half season ticket holder but I'm a full season playoff ticket holder so uh I'll be heading to the game tonight if you want to see me down in Mammalee Arena <laughs> well I'm reaching that point where I grew up in Pennsylvania for most of my childhood but I'm reaching the point coming in December where I've lived here longer than I will have lived in Pennsylvania so I I got to figure out this team allegiance, but it's going to be hard for me to leave my Philadelphia teams. Oh, it's but, time. Uh, it's time. <laughs> well, I, I thought a good starting point um, so that the listeners could get a better understanding of you and your background might be um, the choice that you made, um, which was a similar choice that I made coming out of high school. And what led you to make that decision to go to the Naval Academy instead of taking an alternate route and going to a, a typical university. Oh, thanks, John. It's a, uh, it's kind of a, a little bit strange because, uh, you know, I was, I was actually kind of a band geek in high school and you know, on the, the full, you know, you have the full, uh, you know, the Coke bottle glasses and, you know, kind of, I, I probably grew up a little later than it seemed like. And, uh, and I tell this story a lot because now I'm the, uh, I'm the area coordinator for bull and gold officers. So I, I get the opportunity to tell, tell my story about how I went to the Naval Academy and, it's not always the kid you think that's going to go. Um, for me, you know, like I said, I was a band geek. I did a little bit of sports. I ran a little bit. I rode crew one summer. I think I got my varsity letter in bowling of all things. And uh, but I was really big in the band and the band side. And uh, so I thought I was going into music. And then uh, I got so close to the, the music industry, and I realized that they don't really make a lot of money, and it's very challenging, and it's very political at times. So I was really good in math and, uh, and all that. So I talked to my guidance counselor. My guidance counselor showed me the list of the top engineering schools. And there was these academy things, the Naval Academy and West Point and Air Force. And so I kind of shifted gears between my junior and senior year. So I was pretty, relatively late co compared to these days on what we tell kids that they should be applying. And uh, so I, I applied to all the academies. I applied to all the uh, ROTC scholarships available. I was all in to serve my country and, uh, Got accepted actually all the academies and, and all the ROTCs that I uh, applied for. And I, of course, chose the best uh, at the United States Naval Academy. So that's how I ended up going there. Well, I happen to see that you graduated with what I think is one of the toughest degrees coming out of the academy, at least uh, the way mine worked. My mind works. Uh, electrical engineering is probably one of the most difficult uh, topics that I had when I was there and I made the colossal mistake of, I was trying to take an easier load. And so I decided to try to do electrical engineering during summer break and trying to cram electrical engineering into a five week course was, was quite challenging. What led you down that path of, of becoming an electrical engineer? Because I, I know you commissioned as a Samariner and for, for you, was that kind of a means to an end to get in the submarine community? Um, I actually, I think I, I was one of those guys where I, I've kind of 
keep your options open and, and then, you know, make the best decision. That's kind of how I chose the academies. I mean, I, I think at the beginning of my senior year, the Naval Academy was like fourth on my list, but then I talked to more people and realized the Naval Academy had the most diverse career paths. You know, you could do the army stuff in the Marines. You could fly. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, you could fly in the Navy, I guess it was before Top Gun came out. And uh, so I, I realized you could do almost everything that the other services within the Navy. And so same thing for choosing my major. I was like, well, I'm really good in math, you know, and this engineering thing seems pretty good. Double E seems like a, electrical engineering seems like a good, a good, strong, you know, background for things. And uh, of course you can't spell geek without double E as we say. So, you know, that, that, that kind of, I, I was always that kind of that geek guy, you know, that math, that math uh, guru type of guy. So that that's really how I decided it. I was still, I was still keeping my options open. I mean, uh, I think youngster year or, or our sophomore year, I was I was still thinking Marines or surface or or even a backseat because I had the big Coke bottle of glasses. So I was always going to be a backseater. And uh, so really, uh, I think it just set me up. And then some reasons just happened to be what I ended up choosing. It really wasn't a, a means to an end because uh, I really I really kind of wanted to fly. But if, if they had LASIK uh, or see the PKD type or not PKD, uh, the eye surgery that they, uh, they do nowadays for students. I probably would have been a pilot, I think, but, uh, but I'm choosing submarines, uh, being, being kind of technical and, and doing all that. So it seemed like a good, good fit at the time. The listeners who aren't familiar with the Naval Academy and the submarine community, when you and I were both going through, uh, and those who preceded us, you could get drafted into the submarine community uh, whether you you wanted to or not, and so I know some people were afraid to have a class rank too high because they they were fearful they'd go submarines whether they wanted to or not. But uh, many graduates that I talked to um, talk about Admiral Rickover his interviews. Um, obviously, by the time I went through in '93, he had uh, retired uh, long before that. But you were a few years ahead of me. Did you did you have to go through the Rickover interview sessions? No, I actually, I missed the Rickover by a couple of years. Uh, uh, actually, I had Admiral McKee. And uh, although I remember my engineer who was a class of 82 guy on, on board my, my first submarine, uh, he was actually uh, went through the Rickover. So I think somewhere between 82 and 87 is, is when Rickover stepped down from there. Uh, although I do remember that Admiral McKee, he was a little short man and he was behind a desk with these two lieutenant commanders in civilian clothes uh, standing next to him. And they looked like they were about six foot nine each. And, you know, big, huge guys. And I was, I, I'm not sure which one was more intimidating, the, the two huge lieutenant commanders or the little admiral, four-star admiral sitting behind his desk. And uh, first question he asked me was, why'd you get a D in EE341? You know, and I'm like, because uh, it was a really hard class. And, uh, you know, I was like, but that's probably not the answer he was looking for. So, so I probably didn't have the full Rickover experience, but I've, it, it was stressful enough at the time. You know, for those who aren't familiar with summer in life, I, I was not a Submariner, but I had the opportunity to go on three or four uh, past hack boats when I was in. What, for you, were some of the, the things you liked best about that community? Well, as, as probably any community, it's probably the people. I mean, you know, the guys you served with. I mean, you know, I have a, you know, I have a district list just for the, guy, the officers that I served with during that time, you know, the JOs. And we've gotten together over the years. In fact, one of the guys, uh, I, I was traveling up to North Carolina and he lives in North Carolina. So we went for a bike ride for 30, 40 miles on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And uh, I mean, just, it's kind of like a little bit like, you know, the 
your plebe, your roommate, or your, your plebe company, your roommate, your freshman year at the Naval Academy. I mean, you're really tight with those guys. So I'm still, in fact, one of the, one of the guys married my sister. So I guess I'm, I'm pretty tight with him too, you know, cause now he's my brother-in-law. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing is, is, is really the people. The question people always ask are, are you claustrophobic and how can you deal with, you know, being submerged for that long? Um, but I always tell them that, hey, you're working too hard to even notice that kind of stuff. Uh, it's probably similar to being on a carrier, though, or, you know, other communities where you're fearful of something, but you're just working too hard. And when you sleep, you sleep hard and, and, and things like that. So starting, it's probably been a decade ago now that they started uh, to let females on submarines. Is that on both the fast attack and the boomers or is it relegated just to the boomers? Uh, yeah, they started off with with just the boomers. They kind of had to refit a little bit uh, on, on some of them, but now it's gone full bore. Um, you know, both the uh, the boomers, uh, the, the ballistic missile submarines, as well as the fast attack t- submarines. So, um, yeah, women uh, first class uh, was 2010. I know we had actually one one woman here from uh, from Wesley Chapel who was was in that first class of women that uh, that went submarine. So. They're they're well into their department head tours and probably approaching XO tours now for uh, for that first class, which is pretty cool. And then you came out of the similar to me. You came out of the military, and during your career, you ended up getting pulled back in around nine eleven. I I think so. For you, was that a deliberate choice to get back in, or were you recruited? How did that manifest itself? Funny story, you know, as these all always are. I was I got out after seven years. Um, I did. I did my initial submarine tour. I taught up at submarine school up in uh, Groton, Connecticut, and then I got out, moved to Florida. I was with with a you know corporate company, and uh, I was actually at a trade show in Jacksonville, uh, in, obviously in civilian clothes. And some guy in civilian clothes walked by, and he said he was in the Navy. And I said, Oh, I used to be in the Navy, and you know, good good salesperson. You know, you're talking to him a little bit, and. Uh, and then come to find out he was the Reserve Intelligence Program Officer. This was uh, in 1998, so about three years before 9-11. So I, I ran into him and uh, he started to talk to me about coming back in. And uh, once I got over the fact that Intel was uh, was not a warfare specialty at the time, you know, and I could still wear my submarine pin and I didn't have to wear something like weird on your collar, like the, the supply officers and, uh, and, the, and the medical field, uh, I, I it took about two years, but I finally came back in in 1998. And then, you know, as as we say in reserves, you're there in case you need, if, in case they need you. So uh, I was a full up round, ready to go on 9/11. I was uh, recalled, you know, when the first the first wave of folks being recalled, and I spent three of the next five years back on active duty uh, here at Central Command in, in Tampa, and and uh, making a couple of deployments there. So, uh, but that's what our reserves are for, and that's you know, as taxpayers, that's that's what everybody should uh, be proud of because that's what reserves do. They're there just in case you need them. And right class, we were ready to go and full up rounds. Well, and for those who might be listening who aren't familiar with Tampa, we have um, MacDill Air Force Base. And on that, we have two of the major commands, uh, one being Special Operations Command and the other being Central Command. And Steve, could you tell the listeners a little bit about what the mission of Central Command is? Because it's probably been the most active command for the past few decades. Yeah, unfortunately or fortunately, it has been very active. So Central Command, basically, they have responsibility for military operations within the Central Command Theater, which is used to be 25. Now I think we're down to 20 countries uh, within the Middle East. So we used to have the Horn of Africa, but that went to AFRICOM once they stood up 
um, AFRICOM. And so we have the, you know, the response, the military responsibility within that area. So it's, it's headed up by a four-star. That four-star actually reports into the Secretary of Defense, so direct report, all the, the combatant commands. And then they have sub-commands, uh, unified commands under them. So like NAVCENT is Navy Central Command. They're based out of Bahrain. So whenever you hear of our forces out there, so, and then there's Marcent for the Marine side. So they're all three-star commands underneath the four-star. And they, they actually deploy the forces. So Central Command is really kind of the higher headquarters, and they kind of direct the strategy and, and everything there. And it's, it's a normal uh, structure like within the military where J1 is admin, J2 is intelligence, J3 is operations, J4 is logistics, and J5 is uh, planning. So within all that, that's how they inform the commander, the four-star and kind of tell him what's going on and how to direct the forces uh, up there in the Central Command uh, AOR, which is Area of Responsibility. Yes, and uh, if I have it correct, um, our current Secretary of Defense, retired General Lloyd Austin, I, I think was the commander of CENTCOM correct. at one point. Yep, he was a chief of staff there as a one-star, and then uh, he became the, uh, actually, I think when I end up retiring out of uh, Central Command as, as part of DIA, he was the commander uh and just just left. Just retired uh, just before I left. I briefed him uh, occasionally. I was usually in the cheap seats in his office, not at the big boy table, because that's usually, you know, for the uh, the one, two, and three star generals and admirals. Um, but I was I, I did brief him a couple of times from the cheap seats. For the listener, one of the things that I like to do is is to get the guests to share some of their their secrets to leadership, to understanding their self narrative, their passions, etc. So. You know, as you think about this military career that you had, and let's go back to the Naval Academy days, if you had the opportunity to go back and give a four-stall lecture, which is something they invite guests from many disciplines to come back in and talk to the, the midshipmen, what would that be on? It'd probably be about really mentoring. I mean, leadership is is the mentoring. I mean, and that's kind of what I've done my whole career. Everybody thinks of a leader as someone that sits back and yells at people. And, uh, you know, it's maybe when you're younger and then as you become older, you just direct people to do things. But true leadership comes down to the mentoring and the, and the coaching of your people, because you're not just coaching and, and, and mentoring people to, to do their current job. You're coaching them to be good leaders. So you really need to be mentoring people. And typically we see a span of, of direct reports as eight to 12 people. Um, so you need to kind of be with those people and, and be spending your time with them as far as how are they leading their downstream. And of course, we always have this, this dichotomy of, of managing versus leading. You know, so we always try to we always say the word leading as opposed to managing, which sometimes in the corporate world, and I, I have a lot of corporate experience as well, they use the term management, but I would always turn that over to say leading it because managing a, a bunch of spreadsheets and a bunch of people is a whole different thing than actually leading people. To, to lead others. And so that's kind of the key, especially as you move up in, uh, in chain of command and responsibility and you've got you know downstream leaders that are there even, then you got to start mentoring them as far as their, how, to, how to mentor and coach their leaders to, to downstream uh, other folks. So uh, that's really, I think the, you know, one of the things I would, I would talk about, I'd, I'd probably use a bunch of examples around that, you know, as, as I moved up in, in different, different areas, um, you know, specifically like when I was CEO of a couple of reserve units, you know, I had some junior leaders and they were more of the yelling type and all that. And so we had to, you know, sit down and talk about that. It's like, hey, is that the best way to motivate your people? And uh, and then 
it probably wasn't. And so they kind of modify things. And uh, that's probably one of the things I take pride in is you're still on Facebook. I have a lot of people that used to work for me or work you know, side by side with me. And they'll, they still, we still kind of stay in touch with stuff and uh, still, still laugh about some of the things and some, some of the sea stories that we used to have out there. If someone is interested in going to the Naval Academy, you mentioned that you're part of a blue and gold officer. Correct. And many people might not understand what that is. So can you kind of walk a listener who might have a son or daughter or could be the son and daughter who's interested in going to a a service academy and the importance of blue and gold officers and coordinating with them if you want to spot it at one of the academies? Well, definitely. You know, your blue and gold officer isn't going to make you or break you. However, they can mentor and, and, and coach you along the way to, to do the right things. Probably the best thing is, is to be thinking about it early. Don't, don't wait to your last second, kind of like me a little bit. Uh, I was just fortunate because I had the good grades and, the, and all the activities and things like that. But the first thing I would say is, is it's kind of like three secrets. You know, you want to have good board scores, you know, SATs, ACTs, take them early, take them often. Well, that's true of any school. Uh, then you want to have as high a class rank as possible. Um, so yeah, I always tell kids, number one is great. Number 500, not so good. Uh, so you want to be really in that top 10 to 20% of your class at best. Really, it used to be 20%, but I even nowadays kind of push more people towards the top 10%. So you kind of have to start that as a freshman because a lot of times we'll have students that'll come up to us their junior year and they'll say, ah, I really screwed around my first two years of high school, but I'm now motivated. And it's like, it's tough to, Tough to move that that uh, GPA up to which corresponds to your class rank. Um, but the third thing, and the thing that really probably sets you apart with the academy application versus versus normal regular schools, I shouldn't say normal schools, uh, is that being involved with extracurricular activities that demonstrate leadership or have the potential to demonstrate leadership. Because if obviously if you're a freshman, you know, and you're a freshman on the track team, you're probably not thinking of being the uh, the team captain yet. But if you have the passion to be and you have the interest in that sport and you do well at that sport, then you're going to have those leadership opportunities uh, as you grow, become your junior and senior year. Like for me, like I said, I was a band geek. I was in marching band. I ended up becoming a drum major of a, uh, of a 225 person marching band by my junior year. And then my senior year, I was the head drum major. That, that was, that was my leadership experience check mark, you know, in the block for, for the Naval Academy. So we don't tell people what you have to do, but you have to do something and as, as much as possible and that will eventually allow you to demonstrate some leadership potential in those leadership positions in high school. And that's that's really what kind of sets the Naval Academy application apart from from those other schools that aren't really maybe looking at quite those uh, the, the leadership potential piece. Because obviously with the Naval Academy, we're we're looking for future leaders to to lead young men and women, you know, in our Navy and Marine Corps. Okay. And someone is interested in doing it, they also have to realize that that they're going to need to go to either their congressman or senator. And that's another thing that they're going to want to start pretty early on because that takes some time to go through that interview cycle as well. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, 
Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. So I, I would probably, having gone through it myself, uh, recommend that they start that process very early as well, because the more you can get to know either that senator staff or Congress member staff, the, the better opportunity you're going to have to make an impression. Exactly. Uh, what, we, what we recommend folks do is a lot of the congressional staffs now, they'll have a Congressional Academy Day. And in fact, for example, we just had one, uh, don't want to get into politics too much, but Congressman Franklin here. Uh, actually, Naval Academy class of '86, Scott Franklin uh, became the congressman in my district. So he actually had an academy day, just like the, the previous ones before him, uh, where they you could have 100 or, or 150 students show up to to find out more about the academies uh, across the board. Of course, he was probably the best congressman to ever speak at one of these because since he was a blue and gold officer at one point, uh, he 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 really uh, understood what was going on. So. It was kind of nice to have uh, someone, someone with a actually retired uh, military officer, uh, with with blue and gold officer experience. But so those those congressional academy days, highly recommend a student go to them as a freshman, sophomore, and junior, and then they should formally contact the congressman or congresswoman's office probably about April, May of their junior year as they go into the senior year, and that's usually when the congressional um, offices start to. You know, to start talking to the new students because before that they're still dealing with the ones that are graduating the year before. And, and just one misnomer, I always have to say you don't need to know your congressman or your senator or you know vice president or the president if you're looking for those nominations as well. And everybody's eligible to to apply for vice presidential nomination as well. It's really the staffs that that put that together. So it's it's there there really isn't this you know, kind of the old, maybe, maybe 50, 100 years ago, the good old boy network where, you know, you have to know your congressman and that's the only way you're going to get into the Naval Academy. It's truly based on merit now. I mean, they're going to look at similar things that we look at. And then also, you know, they're, they're looking at other things, you know, community, well, we're looking at community service too. So they're, they're looking at a lot of things that we look at as well. Uh, however, they, they have like usually a panel of maybe three to 10 people sitting on that panel for most of them. Some with academy experience, some with military experience, or just some with civilian experience, and they're asking all the questions about how they want to, you know, why they want to go to the Naval Academy, why do they want to become an officer, and things like that. So, so it does benefit to get in early, specifically uh, at the at the end of their junior year is is probably the best time to formally engage. Yeah, and I'm sure the most of the listeners don't realize that uh, I think it was in 2017 or 2018, U.S. News and report came out uh, and ranked the Naval Academy the top public institution in the country, uh, which I, I thought was a great accolade. And it has some of the best engineering programs 
in the country and maybe the top cyber or information warfare program in the country, given its importance going forward. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of accolades. Uh, you know, we're usually top five in engineering schools across country. Like you said, the the number one in the public schools. Uh, probably one of the the dean of it, the dean of academics. Uh, one of the things he always is is really big on is that we are the we have the the highest uh, retention rate uh, among engineering schools uh, that are greater than fifty people. I guess there's a couple of really small boutique uh, engineering schools, but. Of ones that are greater than 50 people, we have by far the highest retention rate. And it's kind of funny because maybe old school days, you thought about, you know, they, they used to be, you know, on induction day and when you're first starting your freshman year, you know, look to the left, look to the right. One of you three isn't going to be here. Um, those days are gone. I mean, that they really, the Naval Academy of Missions tries to, to, to take the right people and then and then keep them there. So recently we're in the 85, 86, 87%, even 88% range. Uh, over the last 10 years, as far as retention rate goes, and that, I'm sorry, that's graduation rate, not even retention rate. After the first year, it's it's still very high in like the 92% rate, which is, is pretty impressive considering there's a lot of yelling going on that first year and a lot of challenges that uh, a lot of high school students didn't have beforehand. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com coaching right now, and let's get igniting. I'm going to transition here a bit. So I remember you and I having a discussion, and uh, you you told me that uh, you were getting back into uh, swimming and ha- happened to run into a mutual friend of ours who kind of suggested that you might want to swim a little bit farther and for a, a different type of cause. So I was hoping with that as a lead in, maybe, maybe you can explain that that story and then we'll, we'll talk about this next topic. Oh, sure. I was, I was, uh, running. Yeah. I was, I got back into long distance running and probably 2000, I, I shed my band geek, uh, title and, uh, started running marathons and, uh, that had a little injury for one year. So I was like, ah, I, I should probably get into triathlons. Maybe that'll extend me a little bit. And uh, so I started doing triathlons. So I started swimming and, uh, I was, I was actually preparing for my first Ironman. Uh, so it would have been 2000, Nine and that summer, I met this guy uh, John Doolittle, who actually is a as a SEAL, uh, and but he went to the Air Force Academy, which is kind of uh, unique in itself. And uh, we used to have a course that we swam out on base there on McDill Air Force Base. Um, it's a half mile course around some some posts and buoys and stuff that he had he had kind of created, and uh, maybe not created but just found. And so I, I actually swim like two laps and he'd swim, he'd be passing me on the third lap. He was, cause he's the first naval officer ever swam the English channel, which if I remember right is 28 miles. So very impressive, a swimmer, open water swimmer, tremendous guy. 
And he came to me and he's like, hey, we're having this 5K swim across Tampa Bay. You should do that. And I'm like, I barely swam a mile and a half at this point. You know, Ironman distance is a 2.4 mile. So I'm working up to that for my first time, which I still was at the time very daunting. And I'm like, you want me to swim twice that distance across an open bay of water in January when it's cold water? I'm like, what are you smoking? And uh, he's like, oh, no, no, you can do it. It's it's, it's actually was to support um, Dan Kanasen, who's Naval Academy class of 03, who on his third day in country in Afghanistan, um, stepped on a, on a landmine and lost both of his legs. So that first year uh, was to, directly all the money was to support his family that had happened in, in September of 2009. So John's talking to me in, in about October time frame. And I'm, I'm just like, you're, you're just smoking crack because there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that or anything. So you know, then I did my Ironman. And so now I've, which is 2.4 miles. So I'm like, well, maybe I can go ahead and get out another 0.7 miles. I don't have to bike and swim, bike and run after it. And uh, I'll have to just deal with the cold water. So that first year, I remember it was, it was on January 2nd. So you had, you had to be careful around New Year's Eve because you, you want to make sure you're still good on uh, the next day. So that morning, it was 39 degree air temp, a little bit unusual for Tampa. It was that, that cold. Uh, and the water temp was 55 degrees. And John, being the seal, wore a wore just a pair of speedos and a neoprene cap because you know, most of your most of your heat uh, comes out through your head. So wore a neoprene cap with just speedos on, which speedos in 55 degree water is cold. Oh. Yeah, even for even for a guy who's swam the English Channel, because English Channel is usually about 59 to 60 degrees, and you have to swim that. They call it bare, you know, bare-breasted. They put that oil on them and, and iodine and stuff like that. And so John did it that way. I, I did it with my you know, wetsuit on, of course, because I wasn't sure I'd make it without the wetsuit. And uh, and we swam across that day. Um, and that event now has become, I believe, it's the sixth largest open water swim in the uh, in the country. Um, Twelve years in a row now. Uh, raised last year over seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So it's total. It's raised. Uh, something like $5 million, $6 million probably total for the Navy SEAL Foundation. So it kind of shifted from that initial SEAL to uh, to the Navy SEAL Foundation. And I was not a SEAL. You know, I switched to intelligence and the reserves, but I supported those guys. A SEAL, when they make their decision to become a SEAL, they know what they're doing. Um, you know, they know the risks involved. A, a, a spouse, a wife, you know, when they marry into a SEAL, they kind of have some idea of what's going on and some of the risks, you know, that they're, they're involved with their their husband, but a child of a SEAL family, they don't have any choice in the matter. So, one of the things that the Navy SEAL Foundation does, every SEAL that's killed in action, they guarantee that student can go to college, you know, no matter what, if they want to. So that's that's I, that really is what you know. I initially got sucked in because it's a little bit of swimming, but now uh, I'm still not one of the faster swimmers because I'm really a runner and a cyclist by trade. But, uh, but I do the swim every year and I've, maybe I'm, I've gotten up to about 50% on the swim, but I'm typically one of the top five or top 10 uh, fundraisers for the cause. And fortunately, I have a lot of old Navy rich guys, so uh, they support me pretty well uh, in the endeavor as, as time goes on. And uh, the, the event is called the Frogman Swim. And as right. you said, it's been going on for 12 years now. And I think you're one of only two to three participants who's actually done it all 12 years. Uh, yep. Am I correct? 
Yes, actually, uh, we had three, but uh, one of the one of the uh, slightly older gentlemen, um, he he had a medical issue this year and I could not participate. So it leaves myself and Chris Quilty, another Naval Academy graduate class of '89. I'm sure John would have done it every year, but John was still an active duty SEAL and he disappeared for a couple of years. Um, didn't tell us what he was doing. Didn't even know he was gone because that's what SEALs do. So John has swum it every year since he's every year that he's he, he is here. But uh, but he missed a couple of years early on. So so the only reason I'm I'm one of two is because I just happen to be here, you know. And where people like John were off still, uh, you know, st- still serving and uh, still fighting the fight against terrorism at the time. Well, if someone's interested in actually swimming it, I I hear that when the signups go live, um, even though it's in January and even though it's a 5K swim, um, that in a matter of minutes uh, most of the slots are, are taken up. And I think that's because you have to keep it at a, a, a certain size because with each swimmer, there needs to be a, a boat that's going alongside or, or a, a canoe or something. Yep, yeah, everybody has to have a kayaker or a paddleboarder. Even John Doolittle being, you know, as great as he is, uh, has to have a, a, a paddleboarder or a kayaker. Um, it's kind of funny that my kayaker just happens to be, uh, she, she's actually the brother of a West Point grad. Um, so she kind of knows service and she became my kayaker back in the beginning and, and she actually moved up to Buffalo. She flies down every year just to be my kayaker still. So I like to say maybe I'm one of two or three people that have swum it every year, but she's the only kayaker that's kayaked every single year. So she's one of one. So it's kind of cool that uh, that she got recognized for that here at the 10 year uh, for, for doing 10 years. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it actually, if you're interested in swimming it, you have to reserve, your, I'd say put it on your calendar right now, August 6th at 0700, so 7 o'clock a.m., um, put it on, and it'll probably sell out in about 10 to 15 minutes, which sell out's kind of a misnomer because, of course, you're expected to raise probably about $2,000 minimum a person for the Navy SEAL Foundation. So you have to remember, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal swim and, and event there. But, you know, the real reason is uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation. And if you're if you're a good swimmer, but you're not sure about the overall event, I would highly recommend that you go volunteer for the event and go there and, and try to and make sure you're at the start line to see the, the ceremony that happens ahead of time. And you will be moved. Uh, there's not a dry eye in the place uh, when they start naming off all the names of all the SEALs um, that have been killed in action since 9-11. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately too many names, but uh, but it's a very impressive uh, event. And if you're, if you're on the fence about swimming it, you'll be swimming it the next year. I can almost guarantee that. And I understand now that it's expanding outside of Tampa Bay. So where else could people sign up in the future? Yep, actually, it's, so it's kind of like taking the Tampa Bay model, uh, you know, the success here and, and to continue that. So it starts up in, uh, actually started a, a few years ago up in Boston as well, and then uh, in San Francisco. Um, and then I think there was some talk about doing it down in Virginia, Maryland area as well, but I don't think that's, uh, that's happened yet, but, uh, but definitely, uh, uh, Boston, I think it was just had the third year. So I know we had some people up there for that and San Francisco, I've kind of, I thought about doing the other ones, but then, uh, as a, as what we call a a streaker, I didn't want to have to go to my, the people that, uh, you know, donate so well for me every year. I didn't have to want to go to them for, for other events as well. Uh, you know, along the same vein. So I kind of, I kind of decided to just, just stick with the Tampa one for now, and maybe I'll go up someday and do it. But, uh, but I'm, I'll, I'll stick with the Tampa for now, for for me. And I, I wanted to spend some time now talking about what you, you do now 
for a living, which is your, your coach. Um, you're also still doing triathlons. And um, as I understand it, you help people with competitive running and you also help them prepare for triathlons. Uh, do I have that correct? Yes. Although I would say uh, it, it probably is not my line of work. Uh, I would say it's a, it's a heavy hobby at this point because uh, I, I don't know how triathlon and running coaches make money as, as you know, to pay the bills because uh, fortunately I'm retired. And, and as I always tell younger folks, especially save and invest well when you're young. So that, that, that certainly helps because it's actually as a reservist, you don't get paid for, for your military time until age 60. So, uh, so I do not have that, uh, that military pension coming in for another four or five years. Um, but yeah, as a, as a coach, that is correct. Uh, so, I mean, I, I ha- I've kind of created Team Swift, a little bit maybe egotistical to use your last name and your, and your company name, but uh, I, I figured Swift was a good uh, moniker for running and coaching. So, uh, so I went ahead and used the Team Swift. And then I have, I have about three running coaches that are currently uh, kind of under me and we support the Brandon Running Association uh, runners and and. You know, we have uh, for triathlon, we've got here the, the Fishhawk Tri Club is, is I'm a member of that and coach some folks out of there. Well, as uh, one of the, the biggest triathlon clubs in the country is uh, Mad Dogs, which is based off St. Pete. I probably don't do as much with them as I, sh- as I should, but it's a little bit of a drive from Brandon over to St. Pete. So, but coach a couple folks out of there as well. And um, yeah, it's probably the number one thing I always sit down in the beginning with people is, you know, what are your goals? So some people's goals, like, hey, I want to go to the Olympics someday. Well, let's let's see if that's realistic. You know, you're 56 years old, might be a little bit past your prime. That might not be a very realistic goal. Um, but we sit down with, you know, sit down with people and determine what their goal is. Because some people want to go, you know, I want to go to Kona. You know, Kona is the world championships for Ironman. Okay, well, let's, let's sit down and see where you're at, you know, for that and see if that's realistic. So that, that's probably the, the number one thing that I try to stress to, to folks is, Hey, what are your goals? And, and sometimes that changes over time. Cause sometimes people are like, Hey, I just want to run three times a week for three miles and, and not feel like I'm going to die. Right. So th- that's a goal, you know, that, for some people that's a goal. And so I'll provide accountability for that, you know, and then eventually and then they do that for a while. They're like, well, I, I want to go out and run a competitive 5k. Okay. So now we're talking a little bit more about time. So a competitive 5k we're going to have to introduce more speed work into the program. You know, we're going to have to maybe do some tempo work. We might have to start doing introducing intervals. Again, depends on the physiology of the person and, and uh, you know, a little bit on their age. We're not going to, you know, take someone a little bit older and, and just start hammering intervals out, you know, doing 200s and 400s right away. So, and then triathlon, obviously, the, a lot of runners, since I deal with a lot of runners, you know, they, they, they kind of move over to triathlon and notoriously not very good swimmers, just like I was kind of in the beginning. And uh, so you have to work on technique heavily in the beginning. Um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to swim coach somebody to be at a national level, but I'm certainly, certainly good enough for, uh, for people who are beginning. Cause I kind of remember that when I was kind of beginning, I mean, obviously the Naval Academy, we had to swim. I was never going to set any records, but I think I was a good, a good solid D plus a minus person. Um, you at the Naval Academy. So, uh, but that, that, that doesn't quite get it done when you're in competitive field. Um, but I'll, I'll take a lot of those beginning swimmers that, you know, they, they can't even breathe properly to start. And, and we work on the drills and things like that just to get them down to where they feel comfortable in the water, because then you also have to take it from the pool to the open water. So I have coached some pretty high level swimmers 
And then they realize that, hey, when you go out in open water, there's no black line on the bottom of the pool. And, uh, and there's things that touch me every once in a while, you know, the seaweed and, and I see fish and other, you know, mar- maritime life. And wow, it's really dark out here. And uh, so, so you have to, that's a different type of coaching because you, you got to get them more in open water and feel comfortable in the open water before that first race. Because I have seen people where they just totally freak out. And, uh, and that really sets you up for a bad day because it swims almost always first in a triathlon. And uh, so you got to make sure they have a, at least an efficient swim. So you, you got to get wet before the race begins. So you got to go out and swim and, and, and get that done before you start uh, biking and running. Well, one of the things I like to cover with the podcast are, are suggestions about achieving top performance, whether that's you're, you're trying to be you know, a, a top runner, a top athlete, or whether it's you're just trying to take your career to the next level. From uh, being a coach with these athletes, um, from a health and wellness standpoint, what are some of your biggest um, advice points, things that they can do to put themselves in a better place? Yep. For for peak performance, I mean, a lot of it is uh, the consistency. So especially for endurance events, you know, and it's true in life, right? I mean, anything that you build a habit on. So like, if you want to lose weight, well, you know, I'm, I always tell people I'm not a certified nutritionist, but if you, if you shoot for about a half a pound a week, which is 1500 to 2000 calories, you know, you're not dieting, you're making it a goal. You're making it in, in a bite-sized type of consistent goal. If you do that every week, a half a pound a week, you know, in, in a half a year in 26 weeks, you're going to lose 13 pounds. So it's that, that similar type of thing for coaching for athletes. It's it, a lot of it is, is consistency, especially endurance endurance events, because you have to build up the load that your body's able to to handle. Then we're going to have some step back weeks as well, because we don't want to overload people and overtrain and things like that. But but that consistency is key. And, and people that say, "Oh, we're going to take a month off," it's you know, it's good to make it take a week off after your big event, you know, and most of the elites and the pros do that after that big event, you got to let the muscles kind of, kind of you know, recover a little bit, but, uh, but consistency is one of the biggest things. Uh, another thing I say all the time to my folks is hard on the hard days and easy on the easy. So what that means is like, if you have a hard day with a tempo run or intervals and, and especially in running, you, you do that hard, all out hard, you know, as maximum you can do whatever the, the workout is for that day. But then in the easy days, you got to go easy. That doesn't mean go, you know, moderate plus. And a lot of people get into this uh, rut where they run like the same pace all the time. So we want hard on the hard days and really easy on the easy days. So like a lot of elite and pro athletes, pro runners, they may, may be running at a, at a five minute, 530 pace. Um, for their races, but they're going to do their easy runs at like eight, nine minute miles, which blows away most of the people I coach. They're like, well, that's what I run for easy pace. Well, maybe you should run even slower because, you know, if the pros are doing that pace for the easy pace. So there's a lot of that, you know, hard on the hard days and easy on the easy. And then that, that consistency, those are probably two of the things I preach um, as a coach to people. And also the, uh, the easy and easy days that helps prevent injury. Because if you always train hard, highly increases your risk for injury, especially in running. The other sports a little bit as well. I mean, if you always swim hard, you, you risk more shoulder injuries. But usually triathletes aren't swimming as much as, you know, like the folks you're seeing on the Olympic trials right now. Um, they're, they're doing, you know, 60,000 yards a week. Uh, elite triathlons are probably only doing in the 12 to 15,000, maybe 20,000 yards a week. What's your feedback 
and recommendation on on sleep cycles if you're trying to achieve that performance as well. Yeah, for sleep cycles, it's especially like, you know, most people I coach have jobs, right? So they, they got to fit in all this training on top of, of their normal job. So sleep is very important. It's part of that rest cycle. Uh, people, I'll, I'll tell people if, if, you know, if you're getting only five hours of sleep and you're getting up early to go for that workout, you're probably better off just sleeping in and getting the extra hour of sleep or two that allows you. I mean, people don't realize that elite athletes, they sleep nine, 10 hours a day. You know, they, they sleep their normal night at, at night and then they do for a heavy workout in the morning. And then they take out a one to two hour nap and then they do another heavy workout in the afternoon. That That's their job though. You know, they have that. We all have, or most folks I coach, you know, have other jobs and that sleep cycle is so important. Uh, and a lot of people try to, to chintz on it and it ends up biting them in the butt. Yes, and, and that's regardless of whether you're an athlete or you're just trying True. to achieve peak performance in, in your career. Books that I have read and the research I have done indicate that only about 1% of all humanity is able to function at a five-hour sleep cycle, and the majority needs seven to eight. Yet, when you think about time management, so few people allocate that amount of time to sleep. And over time, it has a tremendous impact through my research on how you're going to perform your cognitive abilities, everything else uh, gets hampered over time. So I think it's similar to what you were describing with the weight loss and trying to take the micro steps. You know, to me, consistency of sleep is similar um, because your body tends to get in the habit of being in that window. And the more that you can accomplish that, Based on you know the research I've done, the more effective you're going to have at having a good sleep pattern, which to your point is so, so vital, whether it's peak performance or, or something else you might want to do. No, exactly. And if you if you don't get enough sleep, then you're tired the next day. So then you eat more crap, and then you don't you know you don't achieve your goal of of getting leaner, and then you don't perform as well. And it, you know, same thing for you know, for, for your regular job and being a high performance leader. And if you don't get enough sleep, then, you know, you're, you're more cranky, you yell at people and you're not as effective as a leader and all, all that kind of stuff. Exactly what you're saying. Yes. And for the listeners who are out there who might be interested in inspirational athlete story, we did a podcast earlier in the year on a lady named Sydney Hooper, who's from Canada. And Steve, she actually came down with pancreatic cancer. Um, she was a triathlete. And then did this surgery called the Whipple surgery, where they take out your, I think they take out your bile duct, your pancreas, half your stomach, half your intestine. And she was only three months removed from that surgery, still on chemotherapy. And she did the the Whistler athlete. And she remembers going into it that she thought she would never finish. So her first thing was, can I just get out of the water? And then she got out of the water. And they were able to complete the bike with about five minutes to spare. And she said, once you do that, she ran and walked the rest of it. But um, to this day, I think she's the only um, person who's ever done full Ironman while on chemotherapy. So it was a pretty inspirational. And now she is a coach similar to you. And that's what she's dedicating her life to do is to help others train to do triathlons and, and full triathlons. So great episode. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 outstanding. There's there's a lot of stories out there just with people who you know persevere. I mean, John Blaze was was a famous uh, person probably back in the late 2000s where he had uh, ALS, which of course is a death sentence, two to five years. And but he always wanted to do the Ironman Kona, which is very difficult to get into. It's something I've I've never qualified for for Kona. I've been pretty close, and he ended up 
they ended up choosing him as, you know, because he had a limited time and he ended up doing it the next year with all the, the problems. And uh, unfortunately he passed away about two years after that. But, uh, but yeah, so now they have something called the blaze man role and even professional athletes will roll across the finish line and what's called the blaze man role to honor him because of, of his dedication and from, from the challenges that he had from, uh, from doing a Ironman uh, with that affliction. Well, that, that is an amazing story, and I'm going to have to look that up on YouTube so I can actually see some of these athletes do that role. I did want to give you, before we're done, a, a chance to, to give a shout out. So if someone was interested in contacting you, whether it was to learn more about the Naval Academy or they have a passion about trying to become a better runner or be part of your coaching practice, where can they reach you at? Sure. Uh, probably the easiest place is on Facebook at Team Swift. Um, there's a, there's a couple British ones over there, but don't worry about that. Look for, look for me and the runner, uh, or, or anything. And I use my, my Naval Academy email address for everybody. So it's S Swift at one nine eight seven dot usna.com. And, uh, I respond to everything there with you know, fairly quickly and, uh, for both Naval Academy and coaching stuff. And, and, you know, I, I just, one other thing is like if folks looking, you know, when you're getting ready to retire out there, you know, combine your passions. I, I read that somewhere along the way. And uh, so that's what I kind of do is I try to take all my Navy and Naval Academy stuff and my, my triathlon and running and, 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 and it all comes together and it's a phenomenal, phenomenal experience and it makes you better, a better leader and uh, a better mentor and coach for people. Well, I think that's a great point uh, to end on and it goes right in line with what we're trying to do here with the Passion Struck brand and obviously this podcast. So Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and giving all these bits of wisdom uh, for our listeners and watchers uh, to digest. Thank you. Thanks, John. Go Navy. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show, and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us.